So let me begin with a, um, a definition of counselling from PACFA, which is actually the uh, Psychotherapy and Counselling Federation of Australia. They say this, Psychotherapy and counselling are professional activities that utilise an interpersonal relationship to engage people to develop self-understanding and make changes in their lives. Do mums do that? Yeah, of course they do. Now you might go, well, they're not a professional. And I'd just go, well, they're a professional in knowing their kids, aren't they? No one actually knows their kids better than a mum or a dad. Okay? And if you actually look at the first sentence in that definition, this is straight from PACFA's website. They're one of the peak bodies in Australia for uh, counselling registration. Uh, when you look at that, you realise that's actually happening at church. Okay? Would there be times in church where you'd have a child from the project come up to you with a particular situation or particular issue and you want to help them to develop self-understanding and make changes in their life? Probably. You with me? Does that make sense? So counselling is kind of happening all the time. Now these guys are saying, uh, we're talking about the professional version of it. So you get training, you get experience, and sure, there's, there's a place for that. But counselling in general happens all over the place. If you look at the Oxford Dictionary definition of counselling, it's the provision of professional assistance and guidance in resolving personal or psychological problems. Now, you've got an interesting... You've got to define what you mean by a psychological problem, but an example of that is anxiety. And probably every single person here deals with anxiety, and every single person here probably, I would suggest at some point in time, has had contact with an anxious kid. All right? So what do you say to an anxious... Well, that's, you're actually engaging in some kind of psychological help when you're engaging with helping an anxious kid. Counsel means to give advice and a counsellor is someone who gives advice or counsel. So in terms of the Oxford Dictionary definition, if you give any kind of advice to a child, you've been to some degree their counsellor. Is everyone cool with that? Okay. Now, the other word that I actually used for it was pastor. And some of you are going, I'm not a pastor. All right. This word shows up, it doesn't actually show up that often in the Bible, but one place it actually shows up is it shows up in Ephesians 4 verse 11. It says, and Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. Now I looked at all the versions of the Bible that I've got. The ESV is the only one that uses the word shepherd. Everyone else uses the word pastor. All right. Now what's really interesting about this is if you actually go back to the Near Eastern understanding of what a shepherd did, this is what you get. These were the main tasks of a Near Eastern shepherd. And you tell me whether this is the role of being a parent or someone who has contact with kids. Here's the first one. They watch for enemies trying to attack the sheep. Yeah? They defend the sheep from attackers. They heal the wounded and the sick sheep. They find and save lost or trapped sheep. To love them, sharing their lives and so earning their trust. That's the last thing that a shepherd would do. So is it... Do you think a parent might be a pastor of their kids? Yeah, I think so. All right? They're going to be a shepherd of their kids. Howard Hendricks said this about bringing kids up. He said, Developing Christian standards is like building a fire in the rain. It requires willful determination against all odds to do what seems impossible. It calls for expertise, know-how, which understands the stubborn nature of the child and the nature of a hostile world. It demands a stubborn perseverance to keep fanning the flickering flame to keep protecting the hot coals. Anyone say amen to that? Is that true? It's hard work. All right? Very, very important work, but it's hard work. Here's the thing. Kids need to be pursued. And what tends to happen is parents tend to be reactive rather than pursuing their kids. All right? And we've just got to keep coming back. And, I mean, have I known this for a while? Yeah, I've known this for a while. Do I become reactive sometimes? Yes, I do. All right? So I'm not standing up here today saying Peter's a perfect example that everyone's got to follow. I'm just saying this is what I think is true and this is what we all need to follow. Okay? The other thing is I'm not saying that I'm going to give you a comprehensive understanding of how to pastor and counsel your kids. Hopefully I'll just give you a few tools that might actually be able to help. Paul Paul Tripp said this about parents. He said, the church was never meant to replace you, but to train you. The government was never meant to replace you, but to protect you. The school was not meant to replace you, but at best, to support you. I've started writing a blog a little while ago called There's a Professional for That. And I think there's a sense sometimes with parents in our culture where their kids get into trouble and they think, I've just got to find a professional somewhere and they'll look after my kids. 
And it may be true that there may be times with your kids where you need a professional, all right? There's no doubt the kids need uh, doctors, true? They get sick, okay? But let me give you what I think is a helpful understanding. When you get into the mental health profession, you have people who are called caseworkers and they have, then you have professionals. And the caseworker's job is to get all the professionals that they think are going to be helpful engaged with the person that they're trying to help for the betterment of that particular person. So if you were to go into the mental health kind of side of things, parents need to be the caseworkers, all right? It's actually the parent's job to make sure they're making the contribution that needs to be made to their child and they're seeking the professionals to contribute to their child. But whether they actually get someone else who's a professional to be involved doesn't mean that they can totally disconnect from the process. The bottom line is parents are the child's wise counsellor. Parents are the first responders with good counsel, hopefully. That's the goal. They're going to come to you and ask you. Parents need to be the experts at knowing their child. Apparently the average child, it's said that the average child asks 500,000 questions by the time they're 15 years old. Some of you are going, yeah, last week. Now, you know what's really interesting about this is a lot of the questions that kids ask is they ask why and how questions. They ask what questions, but they don't ask what questions as much as why and how questions because what they're actually asking their parents to do, in a sense, is interpret the world for them. Okay? Help me to understand the world. And this fits right in with um, Piaget, the educational kind of guru, who actually said that kids are interpreters. All right? They interpret the world around them. Now, here's the thing. Kids are not just the only ones who are interpreters, right? Every one of us are interpreters of our world around us. So the question is, what interpretation do we bring to our world? And is it an accurate interpretation? You see, from the very beginning of the Bible, you can see Adam and Eve actually interpreting their world all the time. And uh, I'm sure that you've been in the situation where someone interprets something in a particular way and it provokes anxiety and they get very anxious. All right? Uh, I was at a conference in Brisbane on Friday at UQ and this guru of anxiety um, in Australia, I think think his name's Gavin Andrews, I was trying to remember his last name before, but he's uh, from St Vincent's, I think, down in Sydney. Um, It wasn't a Christian conference or anything, it was this guy, he he was very, very, very good. But he made this comment early on, he said, anxiety is never about the pressure. It's always about how someone processes the pressure. And I thought, oh, that's good. It's true, because it's how people interpret things. This uh, is exactly what we find. If you go back to uh, Deuteronomy, in uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 9, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Listen to this. You shall teach them diligently to their children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Do you hear that? is really saying you need to use what God says to interpret the world for your kids. All right? That's the best interpretation. That's the most accurate interpretation. That's how it was always meant to be. Now, we could actually go into detail uh, with regard to the situations you've been in in the last week, and I can guarantee you we could find some situations, as you would in my life, where you didn't interpret things by God's framework, but you interpreted by some other framework. Because we tend to be pretty... Hinduistic in terms of the multitude of interpretations that we actually have for our own lives and the situations we find ourselves in. He says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He's really just saying, Take everything that God says and interpret the world through His eyes. Charles Swindle says this He says, In many a Christian home, a child is told what he may and may not do but is not trying to understand why. That method, quite frankly, is lethal. Deep within, he lacks the rationale, the conviction necessary to stand alone against a powerful world system. And I'll just say at this point in time, gentlemen, this is not the wife's job to do all this. It's actually uh, the, the man's job is to take some kind of leadership in this area. And that's not in any way to negate or to lessen the influence that mothers have. I think mothers have an absolutely huge influence. But it's not right for a man to sit there and to be idle with this kind of stuff. 
So I'm going to give you a couple of diagrams. Look, these are going to be on our uh, website if you go to the sermon page. They should be up by tonight, but because uh, some of the text is a bit small, okay? And I'll just note there's a lot of spare chairs down the front here. <laughs> but that's okay. If you're short-sighted and sitting up the back, you can uh, repent later. No, I'm kidding. It's all right. This one here is uh, interesting. Uh, here's a couple of diagrams. The big question about kids when it comes to interpretation is... Uh, who are they and what is their world? And you can see that there's a whole raft of things that influence a child's interpretation of themselves and their world. So you've got things like their family values, their school education, media TV is a big one, experiences, peer pressure, awareness of God, culture, temperament, fears, dreams and hopes. And you can see that all of those things constantly uh, bombard and cause uh, interpretations to come out of children about what their world is like and what they're like. Story time. You ready for this? I'm just going to get my book out. This is You Are Special by Max Licardo. Now, some of you may have heard this before, but uh, I'm just going to add a few comments as we go through. I really, really, really like the note that this book actually strikes, and there's actually a lot that you could do with this book. Now, I'm not going to put this stuff up on the internet because um, it's going to be copyright, because I think you should go and buy it. And this is it here. If you don't have enough money to buy it, you can steal it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> if you don't have enough money to buy it, the church has bought it. This is a church's version. You can borrow it. Okay? But uh, it's called You Are Special. The Wemmicks were small wooden people. All of the wooden people were carved by a woodworker named Eli. His workshop sat on a hill overlooking their village. Each Wemmick was different. Some had big noses. Others had large eyes. Some were tall and others were short. Some wore hats, others wore coats, but all were made by the same carver and all lived in the same village. And all day, every day, the Wemmicks did the same thing. They gave each other stickers. Each Wemmick had a box of golden star stickers and a box of grey dot stickers. Up and down the streets, all over the city, people spent their days sticking stars or dots on one another. The pretty ones, those with smooth wood and fine paint, always got stars. But if the wood was rough or the paint chipped, the Wemmicks gave dots. The talented ones got stars too. Some could lift big sticks high above their heads or jump over tall boxes. Still others knew big words or could sing pretty songs. Everyone gave them stars. Some Wemmicks had stars all over them. Every time they got a star, it made them feel so good. It made them want to do something else and get another star. Others, though, could do little. They got dots. Punchinello was one of these. He tried to jump high like the others, but he always fell. And when he fell, the others would gather around and give him dots. Sometimes when he fell, his wood got scratched, so the people would give him more dots. Then he would try to explain why he fell. He'd say something silly and the Wemmicks would give him more dots. After a while, he had so many dots that he didn't want to go outside. He was afraid he would do something dumb, such as forget his hat or step in the water and then people would give him another dot. In fact, he had so many grey dots that some people would come up and give him one for no reason at all. He deserves lots of dots the wooden people would agree with one another. He's not a good wooden person. After a while, Punchinello believed them. I'm not a good Wemmick, he would say. A few times he went outside, he hung around other Wemmicks who had a lot of dots. He felt better around them. One day, he met a Wemmick who was unlike any other he'd ever met. She had no dots or stars. She was just wooden. Her name was Lucia. It wasn't that people didn't try to give her stickers, it's just that the stickers didn't stick. Some of the Wemmicks admired Lucia for having no dots, so they would run up and give her a star, but it would fall off. Others would look down on her for having no stars, so they'd give her a dot, but that wouldn't stay either. That's the way I want to be, thought Punchinello. I don't want anyone's marks. So he asked the stickerless Wemmick how she did it. It's easy, Lucia replied. Every day... I go see Eli. Eli 
Yes, Eli, the woodcarver. I sit in a workshop with him. Why? Why don't you find out for yourself? Just go up the hill, he's there. And with that, the Wemmick, who had no stickers, turned and skipped away. But will he want to see me? Punchinello cried out. Lucy didn't hear. So Punchinello went home. He sat near a window and watched the wooden people as they scurried around, giving each other stars and dots. It's not right, he muttered to himself, and he decided to go and see Eli. He walked up the narrow path to the top of the hill and stepped into the big shop. His wooden eyes widened at the size of everything. The stool was as tall as he was. He had to stretch on his tiptoes to see the top of the workbench. A hammer was as long as his arm. Punchinello swallowed hard. I'm not staying here. And he turned to leave. Then he heard his name. Punchinello! The voice was deep and strong. Punchinello stopped. Punchinello, how good to see you. Come and let me have a look at you. Punchinello turned slowly and looked at the large bearded craftsman. You know my name? The little Wemmick asked. Of course I do. I made you. Eli stooped down and picked him up and set him on the bench. Hmm. The maker spoke thoughtfully as he looked at the grey dots. Looks like you've been given some bad marks. I didn't mean to, Eli. I really tried hard. Oh, you don't have to defend yourself to me, child. I don't care what the other Wemmicks think. You don't? No, and you shouldn't either. Who are they to give stars or dots? They're Wemmicks just like you. What they think doesn't matter, Punchinello. All that matters is that I think is what I think, and I think you are pretty special. Punchinello laughed. Me special? Why? I can't walk fast. I can't jump. My paint's peeling. What do I matter to you? Eli looked at Punchinello, put his hand, hands on those small wooden shoulders and spoke very slowly. Because you're mine. That's why you matter to me. Punchinello had never had anyone look at him like this, much less he's a maker. He didn't know what to say. Every day I've been hoping you'd come, Eli explained. I came because I met someone who had no marks, said Punchinello. I know, she told me about you. Why don't the stickers stay on her? The maker spoke softly. Because she's decided that what I think is more important than what they think. The stickers only stick if you let them. What? The stickers only stick if they matter to you. The more you trust my love, the less you care about their stickers. I'm not sure I understand. Eli smiled. You will, but it will take time. You've got a lot of marks. For now, just come to see me every day and let me remind you how much I care. Eli lifted Punchinello off the bench and set him on the ground. Remember, Eli said as the Wemmick walked out the door, you are special because I made you and I don't make mistakes. Punchinello didn't stop. But in his heart he thought, I think he really means it. And when he did, a dot fell to the ground. Now, I hope you can see from that story a huge opportunity with talking to kids about how they travel. You see, the good thing about stories is that stories actually help kids to get into the concrete. And what we actually know from psychology is that kids struggle with abstract concepts when they're young. You need to give them something very concrete. So you know one thing that you could do with this, uh, this story is you could draw a, a silhouette of a human figure and you could give a bunch of stars and dots to your kids or to the kids that you're trying to help. And you could say, can you just grab some of these and just stick them on the person where you think you get stars and dots? And the really cool thing I love about this particular story is I think in the past what's actually happened in Christian culture is that people have said God thinks you're wonderful and he thinks you're fast and he thinks that you're lovely and he made you. And they kind of keep pointing people back to what they can do. And what you actually find in that story is uh, Max Licardo who wrote it doesn't actually fall prey to trying to get people value by, by what they do. But he actually says this is how you get value. You get value in relationship with God that he loves you and that he cares for you. And it's an interesting thing. I mean, you might be sitting there and you might think, oh, it's a bit childish reading a story, but um, I bet you there's a whole bunch of you that give yourself stars and dots all the time. You know, you do something good and you go and get to stick a star on myself. Or you care about what the dots are that other people get, give you or you care about the stars that they give you and you define yourself by the stars and dots that you have. You know, and that's, that's actually no different you know, in large part to kids. 
One of my uh, boys last night couldn't wrap up one of his mum's presents for today. And you know what he said? He said, I'm horrible. All right? I said, why are you horrible? He said, I'm horrible because I can't wrap up my present for mummy. All right? Now, is that true? Does that make someone horrible because they can't do something? No, it doesn't. All right? And so <laughs> I came out five minutes later and Ange kind of overheard me talking to my son about it. She goes, what's going on in there? <laughs> I'm just going, well, that's a little counselling thing with my son. You see that? Because he's not horrible because he can't do something. Because, I mean, he might be horrible for other reasons. All right? <laughs> and we're all horrible sometimes, right? But actual, this is where the, and we'll get to this in a minute, but someone's strengths and weaknesses generally speaking, are not moral issues, all right? The moral centre of the human being is actually the heart, not someone's strengths and weaknesses. So I don't have to say sorry to God and ask him to forgive me for being bad at baseball, all right? Maybe I just wasn't made good at baseball. But the problem is what actually happens with kids, and it happens with us too, is we take something that's just a straight-out gifting, a strength or a weakness, and we turn that into something that brings value to us. All right? And you can have some really good conversations, I think, with, you, with kids when you read a story like this with them and ask them some good questions. Can you see that? I mean, you could have some good conversations with some adults. I mean, if I was counselling an adult, would I read them a kid's story? Well, probably not. Unless, I mean, some, for some, you might. Because there is something in the human heart about that really connects to a good story, true? That's why we like watching movies and watching TV and that sort of stuff. Not reality TV. So when we actually look at the Bible, this is probably a good thing to remember. Um, I'll give you a few diagrams to understand kids, right? The first one's this. The, the middle bit there is the individual. And you can see, if you actually look through the Bible, the Bible talks about the individual being a sinner, a sufferer, and a saint. Okay? And probably, sometimes, it depends what kind of circle that you move in when it comes to... Um, churches and that kind of stuff will depend upon which one that they major on okay um i probably in my thinking my imbalance has been you think about people as sinners all the time okay but the truth is that people are sufferers people do th- i mean i've got four boys and they do stuff to each other you know and they hurt each other so there is clearly there's there's times where my boys are victims and i'm not going into someone who's just been offended and hurt by someone and ripping into him and saying, what do you need to say sorry for, you know? Um, And sometimes um, the Bible speaks to people as saints as well. So there's got to be this good mixture of uh, sinner, sufferer and saint in the way that we talk to kids. Here's another diagram. Probably should have made this one bigger. But you can see the individual in in the middle here, the individual child in the middle here, can give their lives to Jesus and be saved by Jesus. They're still fallen and sinful. There's a creational component. So there's a part of them, there's a whole side to them which is just the way that God made them to be. And anyone who's had more than zero kids (laughs) would know that they've just got temperament and strengths and weakness issues, all right? Now, strengths and weakness issues are not ultimately sin or disobedience issues, but they easily can end up there. So there's probably some of us here who fly off the handle a little bit quicker than others. All right, And if you fly off the handle a little bit quicker than others, there's probably a created strength or weakness in that regard. I think a really helpful thing uh, that I've found was said to me by a fellow quite a while ago who said to me, someone's greatest strength strength is almost always their greatest weakness at the same time. And you can see that. I can see that in me. Um, I can see the tendency for the thing that I'm really good at to actually come back to bite me. Uh, and I can see it in my kids too. Um, so you've got this whole thing about strengths and weaknesses, abilities and limitations. Um, and then you've got s- situational stuff like personal history experiences, sufferings and blessings. The sense of identity and the sense of understanding who they are of kids is probably something that I haven't emphasised enough in my thinking over the last prob- probably five or six years. So... If you get some kids who have, uh, and there's probably some of us here today as adults too, if you get some kids who have been messed up uh, in the formation kind of years as they're growing up, I think that has really significant effects on them. All right? Now, 
Have they added trouble to their trouble? Yeah, probably, because we all do that, don't we? All right? We're, we're troublemakers and we're people who are troubled and we're victims of stuff. So um, it, it can be very difficult. There's a great ad at the moment which I uh, saw when I went to the Lego movie. Have you seen the Lego movie? Yeah, a bit embarrassed to say. <laughs> Did he end your hand up? Yeah, that one. Um, it, they showed this ad and uh, I just saw it, I just have to use it and when you see it you'll know why if you know me well enough. Here it is. The heart. It's a funny thing. Yeah, it's one, two, three, four chambers that pump blood through the body, but it does so much more. It pines. It sinks. It soars. Bands have heart. Stories tug at it. Games send it racing. And each day is a chance to give every beat a meaning. The heart wants a kiss to send it fluttering. And it wants it now. It wants breakup songs, red-eye movie nights, and late-night creme brulee. And it wants heavy hearts, heartbreak, heart racers, heart bursters, and heart stoppers. Sometimes the heart loves hating. And sometimes, the heart hates loving. But more than anything, the heart just wants to feel. There are about 2,500,000,000 heartbeats in a lifetime. You should feel every one of them. Pretty good ad, isn't it? All right. The only thing that where it starts to go awry a little bit is right at the end where it actually says, it's basically saying the heart is the feeling centre of a person, all right? At the project, we're absolutely persuaded that the heart is central to people. We just have a broader definition of what the heart is, and I'll get to that in a minute. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5, the wisdom book in the Old Testament says this, the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out, okay? Now, I could change that. We could say the purpose in a child's heart is like deep water, but a person of understanding, the parents of understanding, a dad of understanding, a mother of understanding will draw it out. True? But it takes a bit of work. So here we go. This uh, next bit is from a uh, a guy called Mike Emlett, who's a GP who actually works for uh, CCF, the Biblical Counselling Model, been doing some training through. It's a really good article. You can send me a message on the city and I'll get it for you, or an email, or send me afterwards and I'll get you the full article. But it's really... Um, a really, really helpful article about understanding the influences on the human heart. So what you've actually got is uh, human beings are embodied souls, all right? We're a heart that exists within a body, and I'm not talking about the physical heart at this point in time. The uh, scriptures are quite clear about the fact that the heart of uh, humans has got three main functions, all right? Uh, and they're not separate parts of the heart. It's not like a trivial pursuit kind of thing where you've got to put a whole bunch of pieces together and then you get a full heart. There's a constant unified kind of interplay between these all the time. This is what the heart is. So you've got the cognition, which is thinking, affection, which is feeling, and volition, which is the will. Okay? And what actually happens with uh, the human heart is the heart expresses its desires through the body in each of these three areas. Does that make sense? So... That's kind of the broad definition for us of, of what the heart is, okay? It's thinking, feeling, and willing. Now, the body, we don't think the body is evil. There's been philosophers and philosophies in history where they think the body's evil, okay? The really important thing to notice from what you see on the screen there is the moral centre of people is actually the heart, not the body, Okay? So when one of my sons went for the miracle handball shot and broke a bone in his hand, right, I didn't go home, yeah, and, and I've spoken to him since, he's like, would you do it? And no, I, had to, I had to go for the shot, all right? <laughs> Just put my arm in a cast, it'll heal, I had to get that one, all right? But I'm not going home with him and I'm, and I'm not sitting down and I'm just going, now every day you're going to need to repent because your, your bone's broken in your hand, all right? True? Like, that's just dumb, right? that, that's not 
That is not, the body is not, in a sense, the moral centre of humanity. The moral centre of humanity is the heart. Now, we all know this really, really, really well, is that sometimes we have bodily struggles that are like lightning bolts on the heart. True? It's kind of like some unwanted defibrillator. (laughs) Okay? And it just kind of messes with us, right? Now, a classic example is you could go home and not be able to go to sleep until 4.30 tomorrow morning, okay? And you could be really, really tired on Monday at work. Now, is the inability to go to sleep actually some kind of offence or sin? No, it's not, okay? You may do that while you're trying to go to sleep. There may be something else going at a heart level, but it's not, okay? But here's the thing. On Monday, is it going to be more difficult for you because you hardly had any sleep to do your job well and not to lose it or to or to turn in on on yourself and for things to get messy. Absolutely it will, all right? Because that's kind of the way it works. The body actually supercharges sometimes the heart, makes it very difficult for the heart to operate in the way that it needs to operate. A classic case of this is when, uh, if you've got kids, you've been out really late at night, you get home late at night and none of them want to do anything that they're supposed to do and they're kind of like some kind of slithering snake around the floor they're just kind of, I'm so tired, I can't even walk. When like 10 minutes earlier they were playing some brandy game outside, you know, and all of a sudden they're so tired they can't walk. Now, here's the thing. If it's 10 o'clock at night and their kids are going nuts, it's probably not a good teachable time to get into them about the fact that they're being disobedient, all right? Is there likely to be some disobedience there? Yeah, there will, all right? But you can see in that situation what's actually happening there is that the bodily things that are going on for them are supercharging what's actually happening in their heart and you might want to deal with it you might i think probably a lot of times you have to deal with it but in terms of making it like custard last stand all right you're just not going to do it okay because it's very difficult difficult for them the next day at 10 o'clock the next day after they've had some sleep that might be a good time to work on it all right so you've just got to understand with kids the effect that bodily stuff has on the heart okay now this, no, I'm not even going to go there. I could, I could talk about this with regard to depression and chemicals and all that sort of stuff because this is relevant there as well, okay? There could be bodily things that actually contribute to the way that people are going, but there's always an active heart that operates in the midst of what's going on in the body. Is everyone cool with that? Now, this is what Emlet uh, kind of brings out here, and... If you get this, if you download this from our website, I'll leave this one on the PowerPoint. If you download it, he actually explains OCD in the context of bodily influences and that kind of stuff. And that's what, actually what he's, uh, what he's done here. So he's saying the bodily stuff with an OCD person is poor concentration, fatigue, insomnia, uh, intrusive nature of uh, obsessions, genetic predispositions, altered brain chemistry. But he says the heart, the moral side to it in here is the need for certainty, fear of man, guilt, perfectionism, control, and some kind of a works kind of orientation, okay? So he's really saying there's, there's things around that are not necessarily, well, they're negative, they have a negative influence, but they're not uh, morally bad in and of themselves. And then he actually goes to the next step, and I won't go through this, and he actually adds another circle on the outside, which is the uh, societal or relational influences. So, and you can kind of see that, and someone starts with, a heart in the middle, yeah, you, the heart's in a body, so the body supercharges the heart. And outside of that, you've actually got a whole bunch of relationships which supercharge the body and the heart at the same time. And it can become quite complex. Does that make anyone dizzy? But, I mean, it, it, it's a good way to break down. I mean, I think it's a pretty accurate representation of what's going on with people. All right, story number two. It's one of my favourites. All of these, except for... Actually, the next three that I'm going to do... You can just buy in any regular bookstore. The first one's the only one that's, that you'd get from Kurong. Okay? It's called Herbert and Harry. Some of you might have seen this one. Actually, I might read out of there. Here we go. Once upon a time, there were two brothers called Herbert and Harry who lived together in the same house, dug together in the same garden, and fished together from the same boat. One day, while they were fishing, they hauled up a great treasure. This treasure's mine, shouted Herbert. I pulled it up. No, said Harry, I chose this place to cast our net. This never happens in anyone's house, does it? So Herbert pushed Harry and Harry fell. Splash. Harry was a strong swimmer. 
and he managed to get safely home. While Herbert rode the treasure as fast as he could for as long as he could until he reached a lonely stretch of coast. From there he started to walk. He wanted to get as far away from Harry as possible. At last Herbert lay down to sleep. But even though it was very dark and he was very tired, he could not sleep. What if Harry came and stole the treasure? So the next day Herbert hid the treasure among the roots of an old tree. But that night, when it got dark, he still could not sleep. What if someone had seen him put it there? He decided to take the treasure high into the hills where no one would find it. He walked many days and many nights. The land got emptier and emptier, and the treasure got heavier and heavier. At last, he reached the highest mountain in the land, and there he hid the treasure under some rocks. But still, he could not sleep. What if someone had followed him? And stole the treasure while he slept. Now let me ask you at this point in time, did Harry, I think it's Harry, isn't it? Oh, look at that. I'm supposed to be reading it. Herbert, Herbert. Did Herbert own the treasure or did the treasure own Herbert? Treasure owned Herbert, right? Now this is really important. I'm going to keep reading. But this is really important, especially when it comes to kids, is because the problem with all of us and our kids is that we have things that start to rule our hearts and they become the most important thing in our hearts, all right? And what happens is the thing that becomes most important to us is the thing that actually becomes our slave driver. It becomes the thing that controls us. We think that we own it when in reality it actually owns us. At last he reached the highest mountain in the land and there he hid the treasure under some rocks but still he could not sleep. What if someone had followed him and stole the treasure while he slept? don't have to put up hands, but I wonder if anyone here has ever had a sleepless night where there's something that they desperately want that is the only thing that they want and, they can't, and they're just freaking out, anxious about whether they're going to get it or not. You all look like you don't know what I'm talking about. He decided the only way to keep the treasure safe was to put it in a place which was so strong no one could get in. He began to chip the rock. Chip, 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 chip. Chip, chip, went Herbert. Many years passed. At last, he had made a deep, dark tunnel into the middle of the tallest mountain in the land. He pushed the treasure right to the end of the tunnel, then blocked the entrance with a huge boulder. But still, he could not sleep. What if someone forced him to tell where the treasure was? Then they could steal it. He decided he must protect himself. To protect himself, Herbert needed guns, lots of guns, but guns were not enough. Herbert needed a fort. Many more years passed. Today, Herbert and Harry are very old men. Herbert still guards the treasure in his fort on top of the highest mountain in the land, but still he cannot sleep, while Harry, who had no treasure, has always been able to sleep soundly. Now, some of you probably know someone like this, all right? But you can see this mechanism actually at work in a lot of the interactions that we all have with us. There's a sense in which when something actually rules our heart, it actually isolates us and creates anxiety. On the contrary, if Jesus rules your heart, he brings freedom and peace so that's actually what you want to do with children is you want to lead children to a point and we all need to get to the point where the thing that rules our heart is Jesus because he's a good person to have in charge. He's the best person to have in charge. He brings about freedom and he brings about peace. The really interesting thing about this book is that it's very, very similar to James 4, 1 to 2, is it not? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You want the treasure and you can't get it, so you push the other, per- or you want to keep the treasure, so you push the other guy out of the boat. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. The issue with us, the issue with our kids in the project, is that when we fight, most of the time, is that we want something and we don't get it. And that thing gets charged over our hearts and uh, it makes things very, very messy. Uh, Ted Tripp has got this good process that he uh, lays out about how to ask good why questions 
of uh, children. And it's probably a good thing that could be used with adults as well. So here's the uh, five questions he recommends. He says, uh, you should ask, what were you feeling when you hit your sister? Wants to get a sense of uh, the emotions that were going on. Second thing is, what did your sister do to make you mad? I mean, it's absolutely uh, true that there's lots of details. You want to gather as many details as and as much data as you can. Help me to understand how hitting her seemed to make things better. Now, that's actually just going to flush out the whole idea that the resolutions that we come up with to resolve conflict most of the time are pretty unhelpful. What was the problem that she... What was the problem with what she was doing to you? You need not deny the fact that your child has been sinned against. Perhaps he was sinned against. Let him tell you about it. All right? That's true. One of my guys hit one of my other dudes this morning on the backside. All right? And uh, apparently pretty hard. Uh, so I just want to know what went on. That's going to be an important part of finding out what actually went on. Now, as adults are prone to do, kids are pretty good at leaving out important information. That's true, isn't it? And so you just need to get all the information you can, and I'm not telling you anything new. Number five, in what other ways could you have responded? You see that's actually starting to tease out other options that were there. And this is a pretty good one. You might want to think of a a sneakier way to say it than this, but how do you think that your response reflected trust or lack of trust in God's ability to care and protect you? All right? It's really an interesting one because a lot of times kids will retaliate. I've just got to sort this out. If I don't get this sorted out, no one else is going to do anything. Now, straight up, that actually says something about someone's trust in God and who they think God is. Does that mean that you've got to be a doormat all the time? No, it doesn't, but it just means that you do it differently. Um, So pretty important. I just want to fly through this next one really quick um, and then we'll get to discipline. Ted and Margie Tripp have got this list of uh, attitudes. He kind of talks about the fact that when you're aiming for heart change in children, these are the kind of contrasting attitudes that you're going to find out. So the ungodly attitude is a desire for revenge. The godly attitude is um, entrusting yourself to God. The ungodly attitude is fear of man. The godly attitude is fear of God. Ungodly attitude is pride. You want to work, you want to see God bring about humility in your kids. Um, Ungodly attitude is love of self. Godly attitude, love of others. I was listening to this, uh, I'm doing some more study at the moment. I was listening to this lecture yesterday and uh, I just thought it was classic and I think it's very, very true. This guy was just brutally honest about the fact, he said, when I got married, he said, and my wife was walking down the aisle, he goes, I honestly thought this is going to be great. I've got someone coming to love me. He goes, and he said, to be honest, he said, what he was thinking was, I love me and now I've got someone else to love me. <laughs> he said he was brutally honest and he goes, Ed, he's had conversations with his wife since. She was thinking the same thing. <laughs> really godly people, you know. And I think, to be honest, I mean, that kind of goes on a fair bit. And so this whole notion of love for others that Jesus talks about, it's really, really important, and it's uh, counterintuitive because we kind of think we've got to we've got to gather and grasp love and care for ourselves instead of pouring it out and letting God look after it. Self-preservation, laying down someone's life, um, fear, perfect love is a godly attitude. Covetousness, plenty of covetousness happens in in households. It's probably, that's been one of the things for me that I think ought to be confessed more often in Western churches, to be honest. I'm not sure I've ever really heard covetousness fully being confessed by anyone. It's like you come to a prayer meeting and someone goes, man, have I just been covetous this week? I've just got to repent, you know, and turn from what I've been doing. And in a Western materialistic market-driven culture, I mean, I think, I think the marketing machine kind of lives off it. Uh, envy is an ungodly attitude. We want open-heartedness in our, in our kids. Hatred, ungodly attitude, love, the godly attitude, anger, the ungodly attitude, forgiveness, the godly attitude, desire to be approved by people. Instead, we want to cultivate desire to be approved by God. Anxiety and fear, instead we want to cultivate peace and contentment and rebellion and uh, we actually want to develop submission. Okay. Discipline. I'm going to show one and a half minutes of this clip. This is a lady who is my lecturer, her name's Julie Lowe. And uh, she talks about um, discipline and what, and the struggle that people have when kids don't change. So she's a uh, counsellor at uh, CCF.
So you see a lot of parents at times struggle, or they come into counseling saying, my child's just not responding. I've tried timeouts, I've tried with holding privileges, I've tried grounding them for a week, nothing seems to work. Um, and at the heart of that, you want to understand what, what do they mean by it didn't work? Um, does it mean that they're not responsive, that their behavior is not changing, they're not seeing remorse in the child? I mean, it could mean a hundred different things. Um, and I guess a way to start looking at that is by saying, why, why do we discipline children? What's the point of it? Is it to produce behavioral change? Is it to produce a heart change? Is it both? Um, at the end of the day, my primary concern as a parent needs to be, am I um, shepherding and loving and raising and disciplining my children in a godly way before the Lord? Do I know them well? Um, am I being wise in what um, is helpful and encouraging and edifying and beneficial to them? Cool. So I'm just going to stop there. Um, it's about a five-minute video. This is a real kind of... I mean, you, you might go, well, you guys are pretty, yeah, we are pretty stupid sometimes as parents, Ange and I, right? We don't see what's right in front of us. But uh, this is a real kind of thing that just really woke us up because a lot of discipline is like we measure whether discipline's effective by the outcome of whether kids change rather than measuring the effectiveness of discipline by making sure that we're actually disciplining and shepherding and doing things the way that God would have us to do with our, with our kids. Does that make sense? The success of discipline actually isn't dependent upon people changing. You don't measure it by that. Um, the difficulty with a lot of discipline when it comes to kids is parents, um, I think it was Skinner was one of the main ones, the behaviourist who came out and basically said that people are like uh, Pavlov's dogs, you know, you ring a bell and they salivate and they get ready, you know, and it's like people are just stimulus and response uh, machines, basically is what Skinner said. And... Um, to a large degree, that appears to be true, all right? So we give kids lollies. Um, someone I know, I, the therapy for their kids is, uh, is food. So whenever the kids are upset, they say, come in here and get some food. Um, when the kids aren't doing what, they, what they're supposed to be doing, you say, if you, if you do this, you, you know, I'll give you another 10 minutes of time on the screens. And you know what that stuff ultimately teaches? When you turn kids into a stimulus response, machines is it actually teaches kids to be self-referential okay and it doesn't teach them to actually do things because that's what the call is from God to actually do it you actually do things because you're going to get a reward the problem with that is when the reward stops a lot of the behavior stops all right and the difficult thing is that primary schools often and primary school teachers I might get myself in trouble here but they trade a lot of the time on behavioristic approaches to handling children all right so we've got, and I'm not saying it's all wrong, right? But you've got things like sticker charts and you've got, and you got um, chocolates and you've got prizes and rewards and you've got all this kind of stuff. And really what it's actually teaching kids a lot of the time, if that's the primary method that you're actually using, is it actually teaches kids to be self-referential and get rewards for themselves. Is everyone Okay. And I've actually heard it said from teachers who don't use those methods in schools where they use them a lot, as they say, I got the kids in my class and they misbehaved because they weren't getting rewards. Now, is there at some level going to be some place for that? Probably. All right. Does God at some level use rewards to inspire his people in the direction they need to go in? Yeah, he does. But that's not the main thing. That's not the central thing. Howard Hendricks says this, the effectiveness of corrective discipline is always determined by the relationship you build in preventative discipline. If you don't play with him, you have no right to spank him. All right? And I'd say this to all the dads here today, you see to get down and be stupid with your kids. All right? You actually don't really have any right to discipline your kids unless you're building a relationship where you're getting down on their level. And you know what? You can be really dumb and the kids will think that's really cool. All right? Because kind of the dumber you are, I mean, just maybe don't let your wife see it, but the dumber you are, the curler they're going to think that you are, especially if they're primary school kids, all right? Um, and it's probably, I feel like it's probably something I ought to do more with my kids. You know, my boy spent about 30 minutes this morning playing rugby in the rumpus room, all right, with a cushion, okay? And I saw some of my young guys. Today I just thought, ah, oh, blow it, I'm going to get in there. 
Because I walked past and my, it was my oldest boy against all the younger boys and they were losing at one point in time and I thought, well, it's a good um, rugby ruck, he needs to get cleaned out. So I got in and I cleaned him out. <laughs> it was good, all right? So you need to do that. You need to play with them, you need to ride scooters with them, you need to play handball with them. You don't have the right to discipline them and correct them, I don't think, unless you've built a relationship with them and you're close to them. So let me ask you this. Have we talked with our children this week about the delights of living more than the disciplines of living? Have we inspired and guided them more than we have corrected them? Good question. Especially, I might add, if you're a dad that comes home from work and you think as soon as you get home you don't have to do anything. I mean, I'm a huge believer in the fact you get home, gentlemen, and you better be on for the next two hours. And it doesn't matter that you're tired, you better be on. That's the call. And you're a man, you know. Just suck it up and be on for the next two hours until everything calms down a little bit after dinner. Be engaged with it and do stuff with your kids. Story time. I love this book. I am the king. Here we go. Hey, there's a crown on my back, squeaked Tortoise, looking round one morning. And it fits me to a T. Tortoise trotted over to show his friends. Look, he cried, I am the king. His friends all burst out laughing. You, king, snickered goat. Impossible. Why is that, said Tortoise. Because you're much too slow. That's why. Besides, a real king has a long white beard. Like me. See, the crown fits perfectly. I am the king. Don't make me laugh, spluttered Flamingo. That's a hairy chin, not a beard. Style's a thing for a king. The crown suits me splendidly. I am the king. Feather brain, his snake. A king must be especially smart. Watch while I do something special with this crown. Doesn't it sit superbly on me? I am the king. Nonsense, grunted Pig. A good king is deliciously round. I know where to put this crown. Look, we're made for each other. I am the king. What a joke, cried Crocodile. Who needs a roly-poly pig for a king? Try a tough-talking croc instead. Give me the crown. See, it's just my size. I am the king. Listen, friends, Elephant spoke. Don't get angry, but not one of you is king material. King is old and wise and grey, and this crown fits me like a glove. Mmm, do I feel kingly. I am the king. Yeehaw, screeched Ape. My kind of king plays pranks, like me. Bye, the crown's mine. Ape ran off shrieking. I am the king. Catch the thief, trumpeted elephant. Wait till I get hold of you, snapped crocodile. Stand still, snorted pig. Stop his snake. Give it back, flat flamingo. My crown bleated goat. It's not fair, tortoise sniffed. Now this, this, this might happen in your household, mightn't it? People are just going, I'm the king. I'm the most important person. And they end up in some kind of flap and some kind of fight. Ape ran so fast he couldn't stop. Crash! Everything went quiet. Very quiet. A lion, someone whispered at last. Without a word... Lion placed the crown solemnly on his head. Ape was amazed. It fits him perfectly. So it does, they all agreed. Lion is the king. Long live the king. Good story, eh? I mean, that's, that's a story out of any standard bookshop, but you know that story's all about... I mean, they, they kind of write it up and say it's about leadership. I reckon it's about pride. It's about all these people that want to be the most important person and be the person in the centre, and there's only one that can be that. And that's a lion, which fits in super well with, uh, with Narnia and Aslan, doesn't it? Jesus is the only one that can be the king. He's the only one that the crown fits. Okay, I'm going to skip my last point and I'm going to go to the last video. All right, so just, this will be like, I'm just going to do some stuff on helping your kids to express emotion, but we'll do that another time. There's a video that's just come out um, and I'm just going to finish with this. 
and uh, I think it'll be clear uh, what it what relevance it has to uh, to kids and uh, counselling and pastoring them. I have 422 friends, yet I'm lonely. I speak to all of them every day, yet none of them really know me. The problem I have sits in the spaces between, looking into their eyes or at a name on a screen. I took a step back and opened my eyes. I looked around and realised that this media we call social is anything but when we open our computers and it's our doors we shut. All this technology we have, it's just an illusion. Community companionship, a sense of inclusion. Yet when you step away from this device of delusion, you awaken to see a world of confusion. A world where we're slaves to the technology we mastered, where information gets sold by some rich, greedy bastard. A world of self-interest, self-image, self-promotion, where we all share our best bits but leave out the emotion. We're at our most happy with an experience we share. But is it the same if no one is there? Be there for your friends, and they'll be there too. But no one will be if a group message will do. We edit and exaggerate, crave adulation. We pretend not to notice the social isolation. We put our words into order until our lives are glistening. We don't even know if anyone is listening. Being alone isn't a problem. Let me just emphasise, if you read a book, paint a picture, or do some exercise, you're being productive and present, not reserved and recluse. You're being awake and attentive and putting your time to good use. So when you're in public and you start to feel alone, put your hands behind your head, step away from the phone. You don't need to stare at your menu or at your contact list. Just talk to one another. Learn to coexist. I can't stand to hear the silence of a busy commuter train where no one wants to talk through the fear of looking insane. We're becoming unsocial. It no longer satisfies to engage with one another and look into someone's eyes. We're surrounded by children who, since they were born, have watched us living like robots and think it's the norm. It's not very likely you'll make world's greatest dad if you can't entertain a child without using an iPad. When I was a child, I'd never be home. Be out with my friends on our bikes, we'd roam. I'd wear holes in my trainers and graze up my knees. We'd build our own clubhouse high up in the trees. Now the park's so quiet, it gives me a chill. See no children outside and the swings hanging still. There's no skipping, no hopscotch, no church and no steeple. We're a generation of idiots, smartphones and dumb people. So look up from your phone, shut down the display. Take in your surroundings, make the most of today. Just one real connection is all it can take to show you the difference that being there can make. Be there in the moment that she gives you the look that you remember forever as when love overtook. The time she first holds your hand or first kiss your lips. The time you first disagree but still love her to bits. The time you don't have to tell hundreds of what you've just done because you want to share this moment with just this one. The time you'll sell your computer so you can buy a ring for the girl of your dreams who is now the real thing. The time you want to start a family and the moment when you first hold your little girl and get to fall in love again. The time she keeps you up at night and all you want is rest and the time you wipe away the tears as your baby flees the nest. The time your baby girl returns for a boy for you to hold and the time he calls you granddad and makes you feel real old. The time you take in all you've made just by giving life attention and how you're glad you didn't waste it by looking down at some invention. The time you hold your wife's hand, sit down beside her bed. You tell her that you love her, lay a kiss upon her head. She then whispers to you quietly as her heart gives a final beat that she's lucky she got stopped by that lost boy in the street. But none of these times ever happened. You never had any of this. When you're too busy looking down, you don't see the chances you miss. So look up from your phone, shut down those displays. We have a finite existence, a set number of days. Don't waste your life getting caught in the net, as when the end comes, nothing's worse than regret. I'm guilty too of being part of this machine, this digital world we are heard but not seen, where we type as we talk and we read as we chat where we spend hours together without making eye contact. So don't give in to a life where you follow the hype. Give people your love. Don't give them your like. Disconnect from the need to be heard and defined. Go out into the world. Leave distractions behind. Look up from your phone. Shut down that display. Stop watching this video. 
Live life the real way. I think it's, uh, it's a very useful warning for us. I don't think... Uh, I mean, research kind of shows that people are not meant to multitask, all right? Um, the research kind of shows... I, I can't remember the exact figure, but the research kind of shows that if someone is in the midst of doing something and then they get interrupted and they multitask and try to do something else at the same time, it takes them about 15 to 20 minutes to get the same level of concentration back that they had previously. And the truth is that people... I think it made to monotask. And uh, one thing that kids need, I mean, one thing that kids need when they come back is they need to see your face. They need to see your eyes, you know. They need someone to look at them face to face. And uh, whether you're married, whether you've got kids, whether you don't have kids, do it. Treat them like mini-me. All right? And, and uh, be really helpful and be a real blessing to them. And if you're a parent at home, uh, and you get distracted a lot by your phone and Facebook feed and all that sort of stuff, uh, maybe you could do it less for the sake of your kids.